HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Video Network. We are a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we are celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we are just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. The Renewable Fuels Standard, in short, is a federal policy that requires biofuels to be blended with American gasoline. It's also an example of an environmental policy that, while well-intentioned, maybe one that turns out hasn't proven itself to be all that great for reducing greenhouse gases. Today we're going to learn what exactly the Renewable Fuel Standard is, uh, what its impact on agriculture and the the environment has been since its inception, and why it's already uh, proving itself to be a hot-button issue for the 2020 election. Joining me to discuss today is Michael Grunwald, journalist and author of The New New Deal, The Hidden Story of Change in the Obama Era. His recent article, How the 2020 Democrats Learned to Love Ethanol, was published this week in Political Magazine, and I'm so pleased it's brought him to the show today. Welcome to Eating Matters, Michael. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, so before we kind of jump right in and uh, into this topic and learn all about the renewable fuel standard, which I feel like I need to just abbreviate right off the bat. It's like, it's like a mouthful. But um, anyway, how did you, what, what made you decide to write about this? Because I would say it's not necessarily clickbait. <laughs> you know, it's funny, uh, as embarrassing as it may sound, uh, ethanol has been one of my obsessions for quite a long time. And in fact, after this, uh, after this article ran, uh, I saw somebody tweeted like, "Oh, it's Grunwald's quadrennial, you know, flag at the ethanol industry. It's like as much an Iowa tradition as the butter cow and the state fair." Um, I, uh, you know, I've I've been, you know, I I think if you do care about climate change, mm-hmm. um, and I do write a lot about climate change, um, corn ethanol and biofuels in general has been a really undercovered aspect 
of the quandary we're in and the sometimes uh, facata ways we're trying to get out of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, absolutely. And that's why I'm so excited to have you to kind of unpack it with us today, because I think people, you know, hear a lot. I think they, they think ethanol, it's so good, but nobody really knows a lot about this policy. So can you just like break it down really simply? Like what is the renewable fuel standard? Um, when was it introduced and what does it entail? Sure. I mean, uh, and look, I mean, renewable fuels sound great, right? Because I mean, most of us know that the, uh, you know, we have this real fossil fuel problem that, uh, gasoline creates, uh, you know, emits carbon into the atmosphere, and those greenhouse gases are what's uh, broiling the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, uh, we need alternatives to that. And the renewable fuel standard was sort of the kind of the, – there's been pro- federal government subsidies and programs to promote ethanol for quite a while uh, initially, and the main reason has always been to – help farmers, um, uh, because pretty much all agricultural policy in Washington is about helping farmers. You know, there are spectacular subsidies, there's crop insurance. Um, Ethanol was seen as another way, and so there were originally subsidies for that in 2005, and then it was expanded in 2007. Mm -hmm. There was this idea, well, we're going to mandate a certain amount of gallons to be blended, of, of ethanol to be blended into into gasoline every year, which will create this automatic market um, and will really encourage people. It will encourage farmers to grow grow corn for the biofuels market, um, which right now 40% of the corn grown in the United States uh, is to feed our SUVs rather than ourselves. Mm. Um, and at the time, it was also seen as a way to reduce our dependence on foreign oil which right. is less of a problem today. Uh, but so it wasn't like people were really thinking about climate change much, but certainly the idea that it was a renewable fuel, um, it was going to help farmers, and it was going to mean less gasoline were all seen as good things. Is, and, and then the definition of ethanol, just to be super clear, what is the like definition of ethanol? Basically? Oh, man. <laughs> I know we're talking, it's, I guess it's technically it's ethyl alcohol. Okay. But essentially it's a, uh, you know, it's a kind of... Uh, Gasoline, it's a fuel that's brewed out of, out of the starch that's in corn. Um, and then they're, you know, they don't take the whole corn. There's some left over that they feed to, to cows and other animals. Um, but essentially, it's, a, it's growing. It's, they, they grow corn, um, you know, and they, it's, they blend it into gasoline. Um, right now, you hear a lot about E15, uh, which means it can be up to 15%. 15% ethanol in your gasoline, and it increases the octane. Uh, but essentially, it's a way of, you know, the more ethanol you have, the less gasoline you need. Um, and uh, and that's, you know, was seen as a, a good you know, thing. renewable alternative. In Blatea, that's great. Right. And then is all renewable fuel considered to be ethanol, or are there other kinds of ah, fuels? That's a, that's a great question. So even before people were freaking out about climate change, um, there was this recognition that as a way of, uh, of getting alternatives to gasoline, that corn ethanol, you know, that it seemed kind of weird to be growing corn just for the, you know, to produce fuel, that that seemed maybe not the most efficient way of doing things, um, especially since there are, you know, there are 800 million hungry people on the planet mm-hmm. um, by 
by increasing the price of grain, you're increasing, you know, these food insecurity problems. And, uh, and in fact, after the, you know, after the renewable fuel standard was expanded in 2007, um, it created real price spike. Um, and, and in 2008, you saw, I think there were 38 countries had food riots, like there were the tortilla riots in, in Mexico. Um, there was, you know, a lot of instability in places like Pakistan and Sudan that were not exactly tranquil before. Right. Um, so I think people were starting to realize that, wow, there were really unintended consequences. The, the original idea was that corn ethanol would be this kind of rich fuel, um, that by having the renewable fuel standard, you know, right now they're brewing ethanol, but ultimately they'll be making biofuels out of a switchgrass or algae. Mm-hmm. Um, there are all kinds of cool ideas, some of which I wrote about in my, uh, in my book and that you mentioned in 2012, the, the New New Deal. Mm-hmm. The Obama stimulus had created a lot of biorefineries, uh, most of them to try to create these, they call them advanced biofuels or second-generation biofuels. There are sort of ways to create alternatives to gasoline that that don't that don't require corn. But mo- but for now, most of them require. When we're talking about ethanol, it's like corn-based. Yeah. Well, the the punchline that I was uh, that I, I kind of buried the lead is that so far, <laughs> advanced biofuels have been a total bust. Okay. Um, you know, they were a great idea. I, I wrote about them, perhaps maybe a little bit credulously. Um, in uh, in my book, mm-hmm. I went and visited a very cool startup in San Francisco that was, you know, had like it looked like a little brewery, except they were basically trying to brew brew fuel. Um, I went to a place near me in Florida where they were trying to turn trash into into fuel. All very cool ideas. None of them have really worked very well. And so far, the renewable fuel standards is you know, every year it, it mandates about 15 billion gallons of corn ethanol. And then the rest is supposed to be some mix of biofuels, but they have to kind of waive the requirements every year for the bio, the advanced stuff because it just isn't happening. Okay, so it's pretty much corn. I don't know why I always thought soybeans was in the mix, too. There is a little bit of that. There's some soy biodiesel. Um, and then I, should, I shouldn't completely trash the idea, and we'll, we'll talk more about the climate aspects, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but there also is, like, I'm sure you've heard about area, like, you know, some restaurant where they... They turn their grease into a kind of fuel. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nothing wrong with that. That, like, you know, that counts. Um, but it's just sort of hasn't reached, you know, it's not the kind of scale where we're talking about. I mean, think about 40% of the corn um, that's grown in, in right. the United States. And we're talking about, like, millions of acres dedicated to growing fuel. Um, that's, you know, that's more than the, you know, the grease they're going to you know, get out, out of the back of the of the restaurant. Yes, that is true. Um, and so, I mean, talking kind of about scale, what do we when we when we say, you know, mic- requiring ethanol to be mixed with gasoline? How much ethanol, and what kind of like percentage of the overall output of fuel does it entail? If that makes sense. So we're talking about uh, we're talking about fifteen billion gallons right now. Wow. Of. Uh, of of corn ethanol every year and uh, and this year there was um, so so President Trump has been uh, you know he made all kind of promises to the ethanol industry when he ran in 2016 because he wanted to win Iowa mm-hmm. um, which has uh, that's been the one real theme of uh, of ethanol is that presidential candidates of both parties have have 
come down to Iowa every four years and they talk about how great ethanol is, um, no matter what they've said about ethanol in the past. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Trump was one of those people. Um, but he then did, uh, he then did, and he's done some, he's, he's maintained the renewable fuel standard at the status quo, which is what the corn industry wants. So they're happy about that. But his also his first EPA head was Scott Pruitt, mm-hmm. who everybody remembers because he was sort of spectacularly corrupt and yeah. uh, just terrible EPA administrator Which is all around. Saying a lot um, in this administration but, uh, <laughs> for but him to when be... it came to ethanol, it was interesting because he was a very severe critic of the ethanol industry. Yeah. Um, now it will come as no shock to any of your listeners that this was not because he was really concerned about the environmental aspects right. of ethanol. Yeah. Um, it was because. He is a shill for the fossil fuel industry for uh, for for petroleum. Mm-hmm. They, they bankrupted all his. They bankrolled all his campaigns in uh, in Oklahoma, and so basically he was their kind of killer in Washington. And so what he did was um, was he granted all kinds of exemptions from the renewable fuel standards for all kinds of refineries, um, and that actually uh, you know even like refineries owned by Exxon, you know, they pleaded some kind of, you know, oh, you know, and I, I need an exemption and, and they got exemptions. Yeah. And, uh, and so that actually reduced the actual amount. Um, and the ethanol industry is actually doing quite badly right now, partly because of those, uh, those exemptions. So let's, let's um, just really uh, take a step back. Okay. So then just before I want to get into kind of like how it works and who the major stakeholders are, but just how, how are, is this supposed to contribute to a reduction in greenhouse gas? Like, what is the what ah. was the original theory behind it all? So that's great. So, so again, um, it sounds like you know, sort of great for the climate, right? Because you've got, you know, you've got corn ethanol, um, where it's natural, obviously, <laughs> right? It's renewable, and it is renewable. You, you know, it, you, you, in a way, you burn it in your car, yeah, but then you grow more corn, and what, the act of growing corn sucks carbon out of the atmosphere, um, you know, photosynthesis. And then, yeah. then of course, you take that carbon and burn it again, but then you grow more corn and, uh, and, and there that you takes go. more carbon out of the atmosphere. Yeah. So, again, so people sort of said, like, it's basically carbon neutral. And, yeah, you know, there's some, uh, you know, then also you, get, you probably have to factor in, like, you know, how much fossil fuel you have to run your tractor and stuff like that. But basically said, like, oh, well, you know, maybe it's got a little bit of a carbon impact, but it's way better than gasoline. Um, and then I think you mentioned Tim Searchinger, who I think has been on your show. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was really the first to kind of realize, well, wait a minute. Um, it's not like they're growing that corn on what used to be pavement. Um, they're growing that corn on what used to be a cornfield. Uh, right. So it was already taking carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, now we're just burning it. And yeah. if we're going to take an acre of corn to grow fuel, then somewhere else we're going to have to take another acre to grow corn for food. And it's probably not going to come from a parking lot either. It's probably going to come either from a forest or a grassland or a wetland that was already storing a lot more carbon than a cornfield can. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. So ultimately what they kind of realized was that the whole thing was a mistake and that these, uh, that corn ethanol is actually even worse for the climate than gasoline. Because essentially it takes, up, it takes up land that we need to either grow food or store carbon. 
um, and it uses it to very inefficiently grow fuel. Right. And his whole thing from the, he, you know, he was a lead author for listeners who, um, you know, have, have listened to that episode, but he was lead author of uh, the Creating a Sustainable Food Future Report from the World Resources Institute. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, he, I think the, the whole point of the report, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like, or one of the big takeaways is like, we cannot clear any more land for food production or kind of exactly. for, for anything. I think, I think one, uh, one statistic that, and I hope I don't mangle it, but I'm pretty sure it's that if we devoted the entire U.S. grain crop to, uh, to just to fuel, um, it would only meet about 20% of our transportation fuel needs. Yeah. And when you think about that, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, and then we wouldn't have any food. This right. Is probably not the way to go. Right. There's there's got to be a better way. Um, yeah. Okay. So that's so that's one of the environmental issues, um, and I, I think there there are a couple more. Right. I mean, that's like a big takeaway. But in terms of, I mean, is there anything else that people point to and they're like, well, this did not work the way we wanted it to? In terms well, of how, I think like, it's it's really the land use. Uh, you know, I think. I mean, one of the implications of that, and it is true that, uh, you know, for instance, you know, using switchgrass for biofuels, um, that would be, you know, that is better than, than corn ethanol because, as I mentioned, corn does have some other, you know, you use fertilizer and that's, that's petroleum-based and you have a tractor um, and, you know, you have to take, you know. Yeah, it requires a lot of input. grain to market and all these, you know, things that may... Um, but then you realize, like, switchgrass has that same land problem. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, if, you know, if it was switchgrass, maybe it should just stay in switchgrass, or maybe it should be a forest, or maybe it should be a cornfield that produces food. Um, but certainly it, would, it turns out that land is really good at storing carbon and really good at growing food, mm-hmm. but land is very bad at growing fuel. Um, you know, fossil fuels are really awesome at producing fuel, um, it turns out that electric vehicles are really good at, at, uh, at making cars go. Mm-hmm. Um, but photosynthesis is extremely inefficient way of using the power of the sun. It kind of launders the sun's energy as opposed to solar panels, which really kind of directly convert it into energy we can use. And so it turns out that photosynthesis is better at, at turning that sun's in- energy into stuff that powers us. Uh, not so much our vehicles. Yeah. Well, and you write about, um, you know, this article focused a lot on Iowa. And, um, you know, I want to ask why, if that's just kind of from the pol- from politically speaking with the upcoming election. Um, but before I ask that, um, I, you say that wind now provides more than a third of Iowa's electricity. That was very surprising to me because Iowa seems to be like ground zero of ethanol production. Well, again, remember, uh, you know, we're talking about, so electricity uh, is, say, you know, coal, uh, natural gas, and now increasingly wind and, and solar. Um, uh, that's sort of a different competition than transportation fuels, which are there you're talking more about, uh, about oil, mm-hmm. uh, which goes, you know, gets converted into gasoline. Um, and so... Uh, so Iowa is just kind of a windy place, just like you know other fossil fuel places like uh, Texas and Oklahoma have also been huge leaders in uh, in the wind industry. Um, but part of the point there is that you'd think um, 
you know, you think in, you know, 2020, uh, you know, you've got a wind industry that's way bigger than the ethanol industry in, in Iowa, mm-hmm. even though Iowa has the nation's largest ethanol industry. Um, but, uh, but so far, that hasn't really translated politically. Um, ethanol and, and again, corn, corn, the, the ethanol lobby is identical to the corn lobby. And the corn lobby is really quite powerful and in Iowa, but also nationally, because it's really, uh, you know, it's farmers. So what, yeah, in terms of like the industry players, because there's a lot of, um, there's been a lot of kind of controversy between the different, like, who are the lobbyists? There's like a lot of lobbyists. It's refiners versus producers. And can, you know, there's like been a lot of back and forth credits. Can you just kind of give us an overall perspective on? Yeah. I mean, you're right. It does get a little really complicated, but it's most, but it's, it's mostly pretty simple. I mean, the, the fights over ethanol in Washington are all about, uh, they're about big oil versus uh, tin corn and the rest of the ag industry. Um, you know, uh, the farmers like it because it keeps their, it boosts their prices artificially. The oil guys don't like it because it, it cuts into their profits a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's always been the fight. Uh, you know, the reason I wrote this story was because this seemed like the kind of year that that might change where you have this combination of really just now the science has become pretty overwhelming about the greenhouse gas implications of corn ethanol in particular. Um, at the same time, you've got climate suddenly emerging for the first time as really you know, it's not the leading issue, at least the A leading issue in the Democratic primary, where all these candidates are racing to show how green they are, and they're all endorsing the Green New Deal, which is describing climate change as this planetary emergency, this existential crisis. Um, You know, and, and at the same time, you know, Democrats have been doing terrible in the rural areas that really like ethanol. Right. Um, you know, Trump won Iowa by 10 points. And while Democrats did really well in 2018 in, uh, in Iowa, they flipped a couple of congressional seats. It's because they really ran up the score in cities like, you know, Des Moines and Cedar Rapids. They're still getting crushed in the, uh, in the rural areas. So it seemed like the stars were kind of aligned for at least you figure a few Democrats would say like, hey, you know, if this is a really a planetary emergency, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't be for this mandated renewable fuel that is backfiring. Really help the climate and is worse than gasoline and is only helping basically Trump supporters. Right. <laughs> so I well, thought maybe there would be the movement. And and there hasn't been, right? And I don't even I'm not even sure that a lot of Democrats are really embracing climate change as like a campaign issue, I still think it's one that people are kind of shying away from. And, you know, I I don't know. I, 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 I think this election might shape up to be even more about like the economy and jobs than it ever has been. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Well, I I don't think that's what's happened so far. I mean, certainly the Democrats who are in uh, Iowa, um, and you know, Nevada and South Carolina, yeah. They are talking a lot about climate change, um, the, the, like the f- even more than they're talking about uh, about the economy, really. Um, and they are all talking about how committed they are. 
but this is an area where none of them have really, I mean, some like, like, you know, Amy Klobuchar, who is from the Midwest, represents a farm state, and has always been huge for ethanol, kind of not so surprising. Right. And Um, she's going to stay there, probably. Yeah. But but then you see, like, you know, and then Bernie Sanders, who used to be a big critic of ethanol when he, you know, when he was just a, you know, kind of. A young senator buck. from Vermont. <laughs> then in 2016, he ran for president, and suddenly he decided that ethanol was really awesome, too. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's at least not a surprise that he's still saying that ethanol is really awesome. Um, but even the, even the kind of like, you know, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Michael Bloomberg, when he was running, he had been a huge critic of ethanol, and he has been a spectacular supporter of climate action who funded the entire beyond coal movement um but but even him this year he uh you know when he was thinking of running for president he flipped on ethanol that, so there's just uh there's just a lot of pressure yeah i mean that actually is somebody who worked for the bloomberg administration doing food policy work i was i read that and like my heart dropped so why do you think that is though with him in particular he's not running um, but he's going to probably be funding a lot of candidates who right. should have. Well, he was running when he said that stuff. I think now I'm sure he he regrets it. Yeah, he's like he just kind kidding of for no for no reason. <laughs> um, but uh, well, uh, I guess I think, well, well, what they would say, what Democrats would say is that uh, that they've got a problem in rural America. Yeah, that that's they true. have to they have to get right with these people who hate them. Um, you know, and look, oh, like Obama won won Iowa by, I think, six points, and then Trump won it by nine. So something went really wrong, um, and and w- what the Democrats seem to have decided is that what went wrong is that rural Americans hated Hillary Clinton, and mm-hmm. somehow they have to fix that, and they seem to think that ethanol is a part of it. I think also, then, in fairness, um, because it's always been the thing to do when you're in Iowa is to, you know, you go out and talk to people who generally, you know, even if it's not their top issue, most Iowans are probably okay with, with ethanol. And, uh, you know, while the people who care most about ethanol are the farmers and people who are in farm-related industries in Iowa, mm-hmm. while the people who are against it, you know, say the people who care about climate change Ethanol is not their big issue. I mean, they're, they care about, you know, are you for the Green New Deal or are you for a carbon tax or are you, you know, are you for doing something? So I think probably a lot of them, you know, I thought what Cory Booker said was very interesting. He said, look, um, you know, ultimately, I think we can all see there's going to be a transition to electric vehicles. Um, we're, you know, and it's, it's a question of when, not if, right. and how long it's going to take. Um, but for now, yeah, I'm for I'm for ethanol and the farmer. <laughs> That's kind of what he said. He's sort of been walking kind of like the middle line on a lot of these issues, including the Green New Deal. Um, but and the, the reason I said like I don't know if the you know if the environment's going to be front and center is because you start to see like you've seen Pelosi and certainly Feinstein this past week or so. Um, really like kind of come out as like the establishment like we can't go into this we have to focus on other things like the green new deal is not realistic and of course it's not i mean it's not even legislation right it's it's like an idea that's floating right. out there but well yeah and this maybe uh you know and maybe i should probably since we're 
uh, I should probably like identify myself before I sort of opine on this. But I'm like, like I'm a super climate hawk. I have solar panels and an electric vehicle. Um, but I'm amazing. also, I'm probably a, a little bit of a neoliberal shill by by Brooklyn standards. <laughs> and so I think, I think even uh, so, even somebody like me who like you know, I had no problem with them saying, uh, you know, we're going to have all renewables in ten years, um, which isn't going to happen. No. But I, I think like great. But go ahead, say that. That's like that's absolutely great. Um, and I think, you know, I'm all for that. But I do think the idea that this Green New Deal is, has suddenly means that you're also for, you know, the kind of free college and, uh, you know, and uh, government mandated, you know, the government gives everybody a job with free vacation and et cetera, et cetera. That basically that the Green New Deal, as the resolution was written, has become a kind of a wish list for the left. Mm-hmm. Um, defining basically everything that the left wants as an emergency. And some of it I'm for. Like, I think there should be universal health care. Um, but that, to me, that's not the emergency. The emergency is that, like, the planet is is about to become inhospitable to human life. Um, so, I'd say, right. so I think the idea that, that uh, presidential candidates, who have all said they're for a Green New Deal generally, um, and Nancy Pelosi, who thinks is all for doing stuff on the climate, but the idea that they're not kind of making the Green New Deal as written AOC and uh, and others, making that a, you know, the sort of the hill to die on, I don't think that necessarily reflects the, a sort of lack of commitment to climate action. And the other thing, and, you know, and sort of President Obama, one of the, as I pointed out in my in my book, mm-hmm. um, a lot of climate people were sort of like, oh, Obama hasn't done anything. Why? You know, it's terrible. Yeah. But in fact, like just within the first month by passing that stimulus, which poured $90 billion into clean energy, he did arguably more than any human being on the planet has ever done to reduce carbon emissions. I mean, he wow. really, you look at, I mean, again, those biorefineries I mentioned, those didn't turn out so great. But the solar industry, the wind industry, the battery industry and LED lighting um, has all, basically there's been a revolution. And a lot of that is because of the subsidies that were passed in 2009. And so I I would expect, you know, the Democrats are going to run on extending that revolution. I hope so. But I think that, like, I don't think there's been a lot of talk about all of the good that Obama did during his presidency that that statistic you just mentioned like the 90 billion dollars being poured into clean energy is i didn't know that <laughs> not that <laughs> well, i'm the barometer for what everybody knows but you know yeah i mean, clearly need to read the book you obviously but, um, i need to get the but, book yes <laughs> it's happening but, uh, but i do th- and look I, this is a big theme of the of and one of the one of the themes of the book has been that uh you know obama has fought the right, you know, when he was president, he spent eight years fighting the right to do stuff. Um, I wrote about how he actually achieved quite a bit, but the whole time he had the left saying, you haven't done crap, um, mm-hmm. which didn't make it easier to achieve stuff. That said, I think in the, you know, there, I would just say that the actual, the actual Democrats who live in the country feel is there's this kind of debate over, you know, was Obama good on, on Twitter, like sort of the left on Twitter. Yeah. Um, 
that has very little relationship to the way it, like in the, in the actual country, like 95% of Democrats think Obama was awesome. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I'm one uh, of those. And I would expect that whoever the Democratic nominee is, really, unless it's Bernie Sanders, um, but there's one reason I don't think it's going to be Bernie Sanders, um, they're going to run on like, you know, let's go back to the Obama way. Um, and part of that is going to be, you know, although I think they will say, like, you know, it's a new time and we're going to have to go even farther on climate. But I think the idea that Obama did a clean power plan and Trump has been trying to roll it back and Obama did big subsidies for renewable energy and Republicans have been rolling that back. I expect you, you're going to hear all kinds of that stuff. Okay. Um, we're going to take a really quick commercial break to hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, I want to know why you don't think it's going to be Bernie in 2020 and also, um, you know, whether or not we're in too deep to make a change. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history, and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MoFad's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Akiko Katayama, and I'm the host of Japan Meets here on HRN. By interviewing fascinating personalities in Japanese culinary culture, I try to demystify Japanese cuisine. My guests have included sake brewers, tea experts, Japanese whiskey experts, and sushi chefs. You can find Japan Meets whenever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Michael Grunwald, author of The New New Deal, um, whose recent article, How the 2020 Democrats Learned to Love Ethanol, was just published in Politico magazine. Okay, so before the break, you said you don't think it's going to be Bernie Bernie in 2020. And this is like a tiny bit, kind of like a lot tangential, but I just want to know what your thoughts are (laughs) really quickly. (laughs) You asked me to put my Politico magazine hat on. Yeah. Look, I think, um, you know, again, the... You know, Twitter isn't America, and um, and in in the country, the thing that most Democrats want most is to win. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and like Bernie has a very passionate following, but um, but there's no way to argue that you know that a socialist is the you know is the most electable Democrat. Um, not that uh, not that others don't have their you know their vulnerabilities as well. Right. Um, 
but uh, for me, it's just uh, it, it it doesn't seem like his moment. Uh, I mean, in fairness, it doesn't seem like Joe Biden's moment either. Right. And uh, and the two of them have been at the top of most of the polls. But I also think right now they're the ones people know. And, um, yeah. you know, if, if you ask me to bet, I would bet that it's going to be somebody a lot younger. Um, I mean, that, could, that I think would be a really good thing, although we didn't really go for a centrist in the last election, uh, did we? I mean, that's <laughs> I think we had a candidate who was pretty center. Um, but anyway, then we got Trump, which has just been a nightmare. So um, <laughs> <laughs> moving on, I want to talk about what we um, like. You know, I, I started to ask before the break, um, are we in too deep to make a change? Um, and and if we're not, like, what is the situation where the renewable fuel standard gets altered? What would that look like? Well, it expires in 2022. Okay. Um, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, so, again, like, let's let's be real. I think it's, uh, it's probably unlikely that it's going to go from the current you know, 36 billion gallons or whatever it is overall to zero. Mm -hmm. Um, But, um, you know, I think, I know your show is, uh, is about, is about food writ large. Um, And I think uh, a lot of the people who are doing work on ethanol, but also on agriculture and on the entire food system are trying to think of ways that uh, look, I mean, you know, globally, Agriculture is what it's about a quarter of car of greenhouse gas emissions, and if you include all the sort of land use elements of it, um, we're probably you're probably looking at at least a third. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, and I've been surprised. On you know maybe that makes me sound naive, considering I write about this every four years. <laughs> but I'm surprised that there hasn't been at least some Democrat who's coming out and saying like, okay. Well, if we're going to have this renewable fuel standard, let's uh, let's reform it so that if you're going to uh, basically that if you're if you're going to grow corn for the ethanol market, um, you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to reduce your fertilizer use, you know, because that creates not only uh, not only does your nitrogen, you know, mix with the air to create NO2, which is a very potent greenhouse gas, but it also you know, gets runoff during a rainstorm, the nitrogen washes into rivers and including the Mississippi River. And that's why you have these gigantic algal blooms in the Gulf and uh, also around uh, my home state of Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you could imagine a renewable fuel standard that has some more conditions about, you know, reducing, you know, farming more efficiently, reducing your water use, um, Reducing, uh, you know, perhaps you putting there like are a whole cover whole crops bunch of and that farmers yeah. can do to to basically restore their soil, which is eroding. And remember, there's a lot of carbon in the soil, and it's also their their future. So you can imagine kind of soil conservation and soil management requirements built into this. And you can imagine lower numbers, to be honest. Um, like so, less pressure to so I kind think of. It's not just an all or nothing question um, when it comes to the RFS. Though again, like you know, obviously, if somebody made Mizar tomorrow, mm-hmm. you know, there would be. Uh, you know, I don't think there's really a huge case at this point for for Continuing devoting it? any of our corn crops to to, to ethanol. Um, um, but 
So it sounds I don't like think anybody's going to make me czar. <laughs> Maybe Ted Cruz isn't he um, on the same page? <laughs> well, that's a, you know another reason. He, Ted Cruz did. He was the one guy with the guts to go to Iowa and say, and again, like yeah. again, not because he's a great environmentalist. No. He's from Texas. He's a you know a big fan cool of oil, of the oil industry. Yeah. But he came down to Iowa, to Iowa and he said, "No, I'm against it." I'm against subsidies for energy and, uh, you know, vote for me anyway, because I'm a real conservative. And he won Iowa. Now, he a lot did. of people say that he would have won by a lot more if, uh, you know, if but was, still. Iowa does tend to go for pretty right wing Republicans in the uh, in the in the caucus there. Mm-hmm. But um, but in any case, you'd, you would think that would be more evidence that coming out against, you know, being a little bit of a heretic on ethanol is not politically like a good idea yeah um so i mean it sounds like if when we think about like altering the you know the the standards that probably will get renewed maybe it's it sounds like that or, or continue on in some form it sounds like a lot of the burden might fall on the farmers to make um you know improvements on their own land that could make the environmental footprint a little bit lighter um, what do you, I mean, what do you think this means for farmers? Is this just like another policy that if we want to fix it, m- much like a lot of our agriculture issues, the farmers have to do all the work, basically? Well, you know, again, I don't want to sound like a jerk about this stuff, but federal policy towards agriculture, I mean, again, it's like, it's, it's, it's very complicated. There are loan deficiency payments. There are crop insurance of different varieties. Um, there are all kinds of different grant programs. There's disaster aid. Um, there's shallow, shallow loan, you know, kind of for if you have a bad farming year. Ultimately, what it all comes down to is shoveling taxpayer dollars into, into farmers' pockets. Um, or, in some cases, tax, shoveling consumer dollars <laughs> into farmers' pockets. Um, and again, there's, you know, I, I say that in a sort of snarky way, but remember, they do feed the country and they help mm-hmm. feed the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've decided that's like a good thing to do and an important thing to have. Um, I like food. And so we've made it, you know, we try to, we've taken all the risk out of farming. Um, and we've made it quite lucrative to be a, to own a farm in, in America. Um, well, you know, not certainly, not certainly the big commodity, you know, yes. a farm that that uh, that farms the you know the big five yes. commodities, you know the the you know a grain farmer, a rice farmer, a cotton yeah. farmer, and um, I, I wouldn't and, say so uh, for like a vegetable farmer, a small scale vegetable farmer, but for the commodity crops well, and like large scale farms, right. yes, right, and that's true, and again, and uh, and to. To carry big eggs water just for a second, like and that's not not endorsing it, but this is what they would say, mm-hmm. um, is that we have this major land problem in, in the world where by 2050 we're going to have to we're not going to have 10 enough. billion people. Yeah. At the same time, you know, we're going to have to save a lot of land, you know, because really the only so far the only technology we've come up with for for taking carbon out of the atmosphere is this thing called a tree, um, you know, and soils too. And so, so there's, you know, so we're going to have to, so basically the big ag argument is, okay, you're going to need us because you're going to have to grow a 
lot of food on a smaller footprint. And that's what, you know, we do with our disgusting chemicals and our, you know, and our fertilizers you don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, there are these regenerative farmers and, you know, organic farmers and conservation farmers, lots of people trying to do it differently. And there is some evidence that particularly if you give them some of the technology that the big ag guys have, um, and I don't mean the fertilizer, you know, the chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides, but things like, you know, their irrigation methods and the way they use big data to do kind of precision agriculture. Mm-hmm. They say that they can get the same kind of yield without having the same kind of negative effect on the soil and on the land. Um, and I think those are going to be real questions going forward. Um, but when it, um, and, and again, like a good climate policy would encourage agriculture, you know, which is 25 at least percent of U.S. emissions, of global emissions, you would encourage agriculture to do it in a more climate-friendly way. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you talk about what federal policy is really about, it's about getting farmers their cash um, through higher prices or just straight-out subsidies. Um, so I've always assumed that, you know, and you can do it in a Green New Deal, too, the way to get them to do good stuff on uh, on the climate is to essentially bribe them. Yeah, that is not very optimistic. <laughs> Actually, it kind of is. Like one, one thing that Washington has shown that it's, it's really good at bribing farmers. Yeah. Um, so, but like you know, only certain if, if you farmers. Bribe them to, if you bribe them to, you know, to help save the climate rather than bribe them just to you know, or provide the tools grow, and technology and support and technical assistance. Cotton, yeah. <laughs> Give them tools, but that's maybe another way that we can that we can say that, depending on um, you know who who the farmer is. Okay, so if there was one policy you would like to see enacted, I'm not talking about like. Um, well, but before I ask that, I just want to just to kind of like where is the international community with renewable fuel standards uh, standard like. This is something that a lot of countries have implemented in terms of mixing uh, ethanol, right, in their gas. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, Brazil has gone big on sugarcane ethanol, uh-huh. which, again, is, like, somewhat better than uh, than corn ethanol. Why? But it raises some of the same, it raises some of the same uh, issues. problems. Well, again, remember, oh, like, they, it's not, yeah. like, there have been a bunch of studies about how, I mentioned some of them in my story about how, you know, when, after the renewable fuel standard came out, a bunch of like a few million acres of grasslands in the Midwest was converted to basically cornfields. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's bad. But the real impact is that the renew- what the renewable fuel standard has done is essentially increase grain prices. And so I mentioned those food riots. Yeah. But essentially when, the- when grain prices go up, the Amazon comes down. And that's the real danger that, uh, you know, not just in the Midwest, but that when you make grain farming more lucrative, people are going to tear down more forests and peatlands and wetlands to do it. And and then it's kind of game over for the climate because we really need those those natural carbon sinks to uh, to scoop up all those fossil fuel emissions that we've been pumping into the air for the last century. I feel like that just about sums it up in a, in a soundbite. 
<laughs> the, the, one of the major uh, issues. Okay, so one one kind of food ag policy that you, if you were the food czar, if only we had a food czar, that you could kind of like, you know, wave your wand and say, this is going to have a huge, like positive impact on reducing, um, you know, mitigating the effects of climate change. What would that be? Would it well, be ethanol? Like, and, would it be? Uh, I do, I do think that, uh, you know, historically, um, Civilizations do seem to to wither do when their soil withers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the Greeks, the Mayans. Um, you know it all kind of it all kind of went bad when they when they lost. Or you know you look at the Dust Bowl. Uh, bad stuff happens when you lose your when you lose your soil, and um, and there's a lot of carbon in that soil. It does seem that like uh, that just like we right now have a conservation reserve program that people used to make fun of as sort of paying farmers not to farm. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some of that, but really what you want to pay them is not to, uh, not to destroy their soil. Um, so the kind of incentives for no-till, for planting cover crops, for even diversification. And then, and then in the meat industry, which we haven't even talked about, but obviously that's a huge part of the emissions problem. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of with, you know, there seems to be different managed grazing, rotational grazing, silva culture in your graze. Basically, lots of ways to sort of store more carbon in your in your pastures and uh, without depleting without depleting them, so that you have to go cut down another forest. Um, right. I do think, and this is my my general obsession on on uh, ag and food stuff that I'm may may do another may be my next book but i do think that we sort of have to have a essentially a land policy mm-hmm. um a policy of what are what are we going to do in the united states and globally so that we're not going you know so that we're not going to have to tear down so many forests and that ultimately we're going to be able to regrow some forests because you know the math just doesn't look good if uh you know if we're going to I think the current plan is by 20, if we keep going the way we're going by 2050, we're going to have to deforest additional area twice the size of India. Yeah. And again, like, you know, we're going like, yeah, to, right. we've got to start reducing our emissions. We can't, and when deforestation is just like an emission bomb. So. Yeah. Um, okay. I was maybe, I, I was, I was not perhaps the most concise. No, I mean, it's, had it's running the country, but, but like, that's the kind of stuff I would do. It's uh it's, it's a question that it was a trick question. Can't be concise. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Okay. So for our listeners, um, what should we be doing? Should we be calling, you know, those who are registered, registered Democrats and encouraging, um, you know, the candidates to really take a stand on the fuel standard? What do you think we should be doing? Yeah, I do think that, I mean, you know, look, it may be too late for since now that most of these candidates are already out. And even like Jay Inslee, who's running on on uh, on biofuels, uh, who's running on, you know, the climate as his number yeah. one issue. Yeah. He seems to be kind of basically saying the same thing as everybody else on biofuels. But in general, I do think that like pressuring candidates to be, you know, aggressive and ambitious about climate. Um, And then even though this has become kind of uncool, um, but, uh, 
but I'm one of those people who think it also sort of matters that, to try to, you know, to try to be green and advocate for green in your own lives, mm-hmm. um, even though obviously policy is more important. But, um, you know, I do... I do get to feel smug about my solar panels and my electric vehicle, but like my solar panels are like a 14% no risk bond sitting on top of my roof. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I don't know anything else that can get that kind of return Yeah, and it's screwing up my, it's screwing up my utilities business model. Um, so it's like, it really is a way they can change the world. And yeah. so all the kind of stuff that people say about, you know, we should eat less meat, even though I, I love meat and it's delicious. Yeah, and, me too. Uh, it's 100% true. And, um, it's so important. But, you know, I'm trying to eat less and I'm trying to eat Impossible Burgers and Beyond Burgers and that stuff. Um, and I cheat and I feel bad about it, but uh, <laughs> but less is better. Mm-hmm. And, um, so you know. Doing what you can do personally. I, I don't laugh at that stuff. I think a lot of policy journalists do. But I don't. No, it is. It's it's you know, I've been talking a lot about environmental issues, especially in the past, um, you know, with all of these kind of climate change reports. And I cannot have a conversation with talking about without talking about the importance of reducing meat consumption. And like everyone's saying it. So (laughs) maybe we should start listening and actually doing that. Um, And, you know, I'm in Brooklyn, so uh, we're all about <laughs> we're all about doing everything that we can. Um, you know, no yeah, plastic water bottles again, here, and, and you know, and not to get off my soapbox a little bit, but it really is like beef is like ten times worse than chicken. Um, yeah, oh, definitely. And that we kind of know. Now, there's no like for when you're just talking about the climate, like the sort of organic nice beef that they, you know, they let the cows run free or whatever, or treat them really nice. Mm-hmm. There doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence that that's necessarily better for the climate than the evil big ag beef. Um, although, you know, there, there may be other reasons to, to do it. Um, but less beef, you know, more chicken, more, and obviously more plants. That's, Based diet, that's yeah. a proven climate solution. Right. Um, okay. So to one, we have to wrap up, but like, I just want to know as, um, you know, a journalist and author, especially who's written a lot about the environment, who are your go-to sources where, um, you know, kind of like leaders in the field, academics, other journalists that you turn to that you like really keep, uh, an eye on in terms of the work they're doing for like trends and what we should be knowing about. (laughs) Oh, wow. Asking a, Where do you get your information? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yes, yeah. you know, um, you know, I'm not sure I have any, uh, like, you know, you mentioned Tim Searchinger, who's been, who's been uh, a great source of mine for 20 years. Yeah. Um, you know, before he, before he even knew about climate change, before either one of us basically ever even heard of climate change, you know, we were working together on wetland stories and uh, the Army Corps of Engineers. Oh, wow. Um, I think you know any story I do. I try to uh, I try to talk to everybody, yeah. um, and I try to keep an open mind. And that's why, like I said, like I have, I'm fascinated by these food and ag issues, um, and 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 I, I'm completely convinced, for example, that you know that meat has become a real problem um, that gonna that we're gonna have to do something about. Um, but I really don't know, you know, so I really, I'm trying to find, figure this out, I'm sure, with a lot of your listeners, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether the answer lies with, uh, you know, whether it's 
a more regenerative type of agriculture or whether it's just like tough, we're just all going to have to stop eating less beef or, you know, God forbid, you know, the poor countries are going to not be able to follow the gluttonous lifestyles that we have. Um, they won't be able to, and they're going to be yeah, hit first it's, and it's, hardest. It's very, you know, I'm, I think I'm kind of reaching out to, to everyone who's involved in it, including, including the industry, because it's always interesting to, to talk to them. And they, you know, yeah. they know. They, it's like even though obviously they're not going to face any pressure from this administration, they know that. Well, consumer you know, pressure. Things they are going to have to change. Yeah, they face right? a lot of cons- they face, face a lot of consumer pressure. That's like been really yeah. instrumental in helping them kind of move. You know, like pivot in some cases. And I am a big believer in the uh, you know the opportunities that we can that that you know that the public sector or the private sector can offer in terms of making changes. So, um, it's an exciting time. There's like, you know, I know a lot of (laughs) probably, especially in Brooklyn, but a lot of people are really freaked out about sort of the intersection of technology and food. Yeah. Um, but since I, you know, I got, I got two kids and I think a lot about like, you know, climate is my issue. I feel like, you know, we gotta, we gotta fix that. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, in the, in the same way that we've sort of screwed up our soil in the 20th century um, and screwed up so many things with chemistry, um, there are some really exciting possibilities about trying to fix some of that stuff in the 21st century with biology. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see. Like, you know, we invented really nasty fertilizers, um, but now people are trying to, you know, They've mapped the genome of various microbes that you can put on plants so that they don't need fertilizers. So, you know, you can imagine trying to reverse some of the damage through technology in ways that uh, that probably make some people queasy. Um, but I'm more queasy about, like, Not doing the anything. planet yeah. being destroyed because, like, it's a super cool planet. <laughs> and, like, I don't know any other planets that have pizza and ice cream so you know well we, we should try to save it we should definitely try to save it especially since i'm literally sitting in a pizza parlor i guess if you would call roberta's a parlor it's definitely <laughs> a restaurant okay so um where can uh where can our listeners find a copy of your book that's already out and can i get first dibs on interviewing you when you write your book on land policy Two-part question. Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> I mean, you know, okay. I'm just starting. I'm just yes. sort of starting to poke around. But, yeah, no, the the Swamp and the New New Deal are both uh, available, um, you know, on Amazon or, you know, where, where are books are sold. probably the best place to get it since they're, you know, they're, they're not super new. Yeah. Um, but, and then my, you know, my magazine work is in Politico and, uh, and I... You know, sound off on Twitter at Mike Grunwald. <laughs> I'm not hard to find. All right, awesome. Well, we will definitely find you there, um, Michael. Thank you so much for coming on the show and unpacking this complicated and really important issue with us. Anytime, I really appreciate it. <laughs> thanks. Okay, I want right, to give a care. you too. Um, want to give a big thanks to our sponsors um, for their generous support, as well as our engineer Jeet Paul. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio website um, or as a podcast wherever podcasts are found. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening.
Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content and to learn more about our 10 year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a non profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening. <laughs>